Hello everybody, and welcome to Ghost Stories of Canada. My name is Zach, and I'll be your host this summer as we delve into folklore from coast to coast to coast. This is the summer 2019 podcast of Discover the Past walking tours based out of Victoria, British Columbia. My goal is to collect and relay the best ghost stories I can find from each province and territory. This means I'll be searching through books, web pages, and videos, as well as reaching out to other tour companies across the country to gather stories. You can expect a new episode to be released every Monday and Thursday starting July 1st and ending in mid-August. Welcome to episode 2, Nova Scotia. This episode's collection of stories has a vintage feel to it that really embodies the folklore of the East Coast. Part of that is that so many ghost stories from Nova Scotia were documented and published by Helen Creighton in her book Blue Nose Ghosts in 1957, which became the foundation for storytelling about the area. Many of the stories in this episode are either from that book or from authors who have studied her work. Another reason for today's overarching vintage style is that you won't hear about any horrifying wraiths or evil spirits. There are no horrific murders or stories of sleep paralysis. I focused more on rural communities, and stories that, for the most part, will be new to listeners. These stories are more reflective of everyday events. There's sort of a homey vibe to them, and they're steeped in long-standing traditions and superstitions. That's part of what I hope to accomplish through these episodes, to showcase how there are so many varieties of ghost stories even just in Canada, and each one very much based in culture and location. By the end of the series next month, have a look back at these early episodes and contrast them with the stories that I'll include for Ontario, the Yukon, Manitoba, and British Columbia, for example. Each province has its own unique color palette. Let's start off today with a short story that exemplifies the type of storytelling you can expect to hear in Canada's Ocean Playground. and Parsbro is an S-bend that winds its way through the trees of Moose River that's known by an ominous name, the Devil's Elbow. Local legend has it that you wait until the moon is full and drive up to the bend at the stroke of midnight. You can put your car in park and turn off your lights, then the car itself. You wait there in the stillness of the night until you hear a tapping on your window. If you roll it down, you'll find the devil himself looking back at you, and you can make a deal. You can get anything you want. Health, fame, fortune, love. 
but for a price. When I was a kid, I would go out to Parsborough with my grandparents, and we might have dinner or might see a show. We might even be going out for Christmas Eve Mass. But we would come back at night through the devil's elbow. When we got to the corner, my grandfather would slow the car down to a crawl and begin to roll down the windows, which is of course not the proper steps to take according to the legend. I think he just did it to freak my brother and I out, and my grandmother would chastise him for it. I would sit up in bed those nights, looking out the window into the yard and the trees behind them, afraid of the devil having followed us home. That or seeing zombies wandering around. We were nearby a couple of cemeteries, and that also freaked me out as a kid. If you can gather this, I was a, a nervous kid when it came to scary things. Nonetheless, I learned very quickly that Nova Scotia was a hotbed for all sorts of folklore and superstitions, and the stories you're about to hear just scratch the surface. The first chapter in Blue Nose Ghosts is called Forerunners, and I think it's appropriate to have our first pairing of stories focus on forerunners as well. Forerunners can come in many different forms, but are often associated with death. Let's head over to the Annapolis Valley for the first one. Annapolis Royal is the site of the first permanent European settlement in what is now Canada. If you travel south along the water, you'll find a little amusement park called Upper Clements Park. The rides there aren't very tall, so you can't see far around from them, but if there was one tall enough, you could look out across the Annapolis Basin and see due west the community of Carsdale. In 1947, historian and folklorist Helen Creighton and her friend Martha Banning Thomas were visiting a Mr. A.B. Thorne in Carsdale. He was in his 60s and was a nervous man despite being in good health and living a fairly comfortable life. It was during this visit he related a story to Helen and Martha which had haunted him since the day it happened. It took place around the year 1900 or so, and Creighton recorded the tale in her book Blue Nose Ghosts. Thorne grew up with a childhood friend named Joe Holmes. They were in their early twenties when the story took place. They had a letter to mail one evening, so they set out to post it around 10 p.m. Now, they had nothing to do the following morning, and it was a nice moonlit night, so once they posted it, they crossed the street and sat down to chat. Their conversation halted when they heard the distinctive sound of a hoe striking a rock in the garden across the road. They looked and saw nothing. The grass was about a yard high. Silently they waited, and they watched as a humanoid thing came crawling around the side of the house. It stood up on its hind legs, and they realized it was a man, about medium size. It didn't stay for long, though, and soon walked out of sight. Thorne and Holmes had known each other forever, and neither one of them spoke or moved a muscle. Both wanted to see if it would come back. It did, closer this time, and pausing in the middle of the road before dropping to all fours and scurrying off. The third time it returned, it began shaking apples down from a tree. This frightened the two friends. Let's go home, Thorne whispered, and Holmes nodded. They both took one step and froze. 
Their houses were in opposite directions, and the walk home in the dark would be terrifying alone. They decided to go to Joe's house and ran off in that direction. When they arrived, they sat down to talk. They felt much braver now that they were away from the scene of the encounter, and maybe figured that they had imagined it, or that someone had been pulling a prank. Still, their hearts were pounding, and they knew that they would not be able to rest easy without ever figuring out what it really was, and so they began to walk back towards where they had last seen it. With each step they took in the quiet moonlight, the more nervous they became. Down the road they could see the house with the garden, and there in the middle of the street was the thing walking toward them. When it was about twenty feet away, it stopped, but Thorn and Holmes continued until they were right up next to it. They could see everything clearly in the moonlight. It wore black pants and a white shirt, and its head was hairless. Its eyes were deeply sunken in, but bright and shining. It looked like a skeleton. Holmes screamed and ran. Thorn turned and dashed after him. The thing kept pace with them, always about twenty feet behind, until they reached Joe's house. They jumped the fence and watched from the doorway as the thing cut across the field. There was a stone wall across the field with a rotten pole sticking up out of it. The thing jumped up and perched on the pole, silhouetted in the moonlight. About half an hour later, it hopped off and disappeared into the grass. Neither of them knew it at the time, but what they had encountered would prove to be a forerunner, a type of ghost that manifests as a harbinger of death. The next morning... Thorn went out to examine the rotten pole. He reached out to touch it, and the moment he did, it collapsed. Nothing could have possibly sat on it, let alone for half an hour. A year later, Joe Holmes contracted tuberculosis and very quickly took ill. The disease consumed his body rapidly, and he deteriorated at an alarming rate, although he never lost touch with his mind. One day, deep into the illness... He told his mother that his throat wouldn't bother him any more. The thing had visited him in the night, approached his bed, and touched his throat. The unbearable pain immediately ceased and troubled him no more. The day that Holmes died, Thorn came to visit him in his room. When Thorn approached the bed, he did so in shock. There, lying on the sheets, was Holmes, but he did not look like the friend he knew so well. He had lost most of his hair, and his eyes were deeply sunken into his skull. He was frail and thin, his bony body protruding out from under his black pants and white shirt. When Thorn stepped up to the bedside, Holmes turned his head to look up at his friend. Neither of them smiled. They both knew exactly what Thorn was thinking. Holmes had become the spitting image of the thing they had seen twelve months earlier right down to the clothes he was wearing. Forerunners are strange and inexplicable happenings that often serve to warn someone of something that will happen in the future, usually a death. The most famous kind is a doppelganger, where a person sees an exact double of themselves, Like with Percy Shelley, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, Queen Elizabeth I, and Abraham Lincoln. Seeing one's doppelganger results in imminent death. Another harbinger of death comes in the form of knocking at the door. 
Three knocks, unexplained, is a sure sign that someone you know is about to die. The August gales of 1926 and 1927 were particularly deadly ones. During one of the storms in Lunenburg, a family heard a knocking at the front door. Some of the children went to investigate, but there was no one there. A second knocking was heard, but a quick look yielded no visitor. Finally, a third knock at the door had the children looking out the window to see their uncle standing outside in the rain looking back. That was impossible. He was out at sea. A few days later, the family received the terrible but not unexpected news. That same uncle had died as a squall had wrecked his ship in the nighttime. The next set of stories will each involve murder, although in entirely different capacities. Back in the Newfoundland and Labrador episode, I promised you some pirates, so here are some pirates. With 7,600 kilometers of coastline, it's no wonder that Nova Scotia has a long history with pirates and, more to the point, buried treasure. Many small communities around the whole province will have a story or two about where treasure can be found. Very rarely you come across a story of someone actually having found the treasure, though. Perhaps that's because the stories of existing treasure have been greatly exaggerated, but another reason would be that not many people do go searching for buried treasure despite their belief in its existence. What's stopping them? Pirates knew that burying treasure was not always a quick endeavor, and it was very conceivable that they could be watched from a hiding place while they dug. Anyone who saw them bury the loot could simply come back the next day and exhume it. To avoid this, pirates often turned to supernatural methods of protection. For example, here is an account from a witness to pirates burying treasure along the Nova Scotian coast. The ship arrives at the beach and about five pirates came to shore, including the captain. They began digging, and when the hole was ready, two of the men retrieved the chest from the ship and brought it over. Down into the hole it went, but then the four men stood facing the captain. The captain spoke. Who is going to keep this money? A moment of silence followed, broken when one of the men voiced, Well, the other fellows don't say much. I'll keep it. All right, replied the captain. You're going to guard it for 150 years. And with that, the others held him down while the captain drew his sword and proceeded to cut off the volunteer's head. They threw the head and the body down into the pit they had made, then began to cover it up. Once it was finished, back to their ship they went and they were not seen on those shores again. So you see, what stops most people from digging for treasure is the fear of the ghost that guards it. It might only appear when you dig, but sometimes it can appear even when you wander too close. A fellow from Boudelier's Point was rowing back from French Village, north of Peggy's Cove, and as he rowed past Clam Island, he saw a man standing on the shore and waving. 
Come ashore and take me off this island, the man called. Something felt wrong, and the oarsman started to row faster. The island man approached, gliding over the water, until he was right up next to the boat. Come ashore and take me off, the ghost pleaded. When ignored for the second time, the ghost cried out, You're not going to take me off this island. Do you mean to say that I've got to stay here for another hundred years? And he vanished. Horace Johnson, a fisherman from Port Wade on the Annapolis Basin, not too far from Carsdale, was one of the few who did indeed try his hand at uncovering treasure. A Scotsman had come to town and claimed his father had sailed with Captain Kidd. Kidd's treasure, according to a map this fellow had, was buried at Hudson's Point. Johnson, the Scot, and two others decided to grab their shovels, and about 10 p.m. they descended to the beach, as digging for treasure must always be done at night. The tide was out, and the moonlight gave them enough to see. They began digging, and it wasn't long before Johnson had an eerie feeling, as if he was being watched. He pulled himself out of the hole and looked around, but the coast was clear. He looked back down into the hole, and counted four men digging there. Who was the extra man? This almost caused him to yell out in surprise, but he caught himself. The last thing you want to do while digging for treasure is speak. Speaking can send the treasure farther down into the earth, or, more alarmingly, speaking can activate the curse put on the ghost, allowing it to harm you. Johnson motioned for the others to come up. Once up, he gestured to the extra man, still down in the hole, digging, and the four walked a distance away. Safely outside of the ghost's range, they began to discuss their predicament. Who is the fifth man? They wondered. We'd better go have a closer look. They walked back to the hole, and there he was, head down, still digging away. As they watched, the ground began to shake, and the air around them rumbled with a devilish noise. For three of the treasure hunters, that was too much, and they motioned to head home. But Ike Fleet, the fourth man, interrupted them. No, I'm not going to go, he whispered. We've come to dig a treasure. We heard a little noise, but that's just thunder. And with that, Ike jumped back down into the hole. As his feet hit the bottom, both he and the extra man disappeared. Johnson then heard shouting and looked out to the ocean. There he saw Ike up to his neck in the water of the Annapolis Basin, about 100 feet away. They got him safely back to shore, but no more digging was done that night. The other three were already convinced to head home, and Ike Fleet now joined them, soaked to the bone and shivering, but not because of the cold. The stone bridge spanning Mill Cove Brook outside of Chester might seem unassuming, but you're going to want to cross it by walking straight down the middle so as not to look over the sides. As you do, you hear a splashing sound coming from the water below, as if someone is getting out of the brook, but steadfastly you keep your eyes straight ahead and hurry over the bridge, never looking back.
There was an inn that stood nearby, built back before 1710. A century later, in the 1800s, a group of men were seated in the dining room playing cards to while away the winter evening. After a few drinks, the game got rowdy, and a fellow from the Annapolis Valley was accused of cheating. The solution? A gun was drawn, and a bullet fired into his brain. He crumpled to the wooden floor, and a pool of blood encircled his head. A different problem was now on their hands. They had to get rid of the body while it was still dark out. They couldn't bury him. The cold winter ground outside was frozen and impossible to dig. Instead, they brought the body over to the Mill Cove Brook Bridge, tied some weights to him, and threw him over the side. Later that year, when spring rolled around, the warm air tempted some young boys out to swim in the brook. While splashing around, they dislodged the corpse from the bottom and the rotting body rose back up to the surface. Their screams alerted the authorities, and the body was removed, examined, and buried. But no arrest was ever made. No one in town claimed to recognize the man. It wasn't long after the body was found that the townsfolk would hear splashing around the base of the bridge as they crossed over it. Looking down over the side, they would see the ghost of the man climbing back up the side of it toward them. His skin was rippled and rotting off of him, and his eyes were dead and gray. No one would ever stay long enough for him to make it all the way to the top of the bridge. When the old inn was torn down in 1958, the crew made an interesting discovery. There was a thick rug that had covered the dining room floor for decades. When they removed it, they found something very odd and very chilling. There, in the center of the room and soaked into the wooden floor, were bloodstains. Maddox was traveling down the old Cumberland Road through the woods with his horse and wagon when he was approached by a young girl. She was wearing no shoes, and Art could see that the back of her head and shoulders was bloody. He stopped the wagon and asked what happened. She responded that her brother had hit her with an axe and buried her in the nearby riverbed. She turned to show Art the wounds on the back of her head and he fled down the road away from her. If you take the Trans-Canada Highway between Amherst and Truro, you'll pass just outside of the village of Londonderry. It was there that Lucy Clark and her family worked a pig farm in the early 1900s. One night, the parents left Lucy and her brother alone on the farm. The two were to feed the pigs and latch their gate afterwards so the pigs wouldn't escape. Well, the children fed the pigs just fine, but forgot to close the latch. They looked out of the window and saw pigs wandering all over the property. They were going to be in a lot of trouble when their parents got home unless they could get the pigs back in. 
Lucy and her brother ran all over the yard, herding the pigs one by one back into the pen. Finally, there was but one pig left, who was large and difficult to contain. The kids were tired, and so the brother picked up an axe. The pig was about as ready as it was going to get anyway. He lifted the axe and swung the blade right at the pig. Lucy, unaware of her brother's plan, tried a method of her own, diving onto the pig to catch it. The axe swiftly descended with a thud into the back of Lucy's skull. Her brother began to panic and attempted to hide the body in the nearby Great Village River by damming it, burying her in the riverbed, and then breaking the dam, covering her grave with water. Their parents came home the next day to find their daughter missing. The brother said that she had run off during the night, and no one knew where. Years passed, and no one was the wiser until Art Maddox pulled into town with some police. Her brother confessed to the crime and the townsfolk dredged the riverbed. It didn't take much searching before they hauled to the embankment a body, Lucy's, exactly as her ghost had described. says old Nova Scotian folklore like stories about the devil himself. Before we head out to the Halifax area, and one of Canada's most famous landmarks, we're sticking around the Bay of Fundy to dance with the devil. One thing I've noticed in researching ghost stories from across the country is that different regions tend to have different focuses and superstitions. For example, out east in the Atlantic provinces, there are loads of stories concerning forerunners and premonitions, whereas out west I found very little concerning that. It could be that the west was colonized much later than the east was, and so the European presence in the west was more of a modern kind than the European presence in the east, which has older roots in lifestyle and superstition. Another focus of many stories out east is the devil. You don't get that much out here in B.C., but Helen Creighton's Blue-Nosed Ghosts has an entire chapter devoted to stories about the devil. It is a risky undertaking to challenge the devil, or to call upon him in times of need. He is always nearby, ready to appear and grant the slightest favor, but he always exacts a terrible and often fatal price. Just west of Parsbro is a community called Diligent River, Nowadays, the DR entertainment comes in form of an open mic, but back in the 1800s, the main events were dances, and there was a girl who lived halfway between Diligent River and Parsbro who loved to dance. One year, the girl awoke in the morning of a big dance to find that her date had cancelled on her in favor of taking another girl as his partner. She was devastated and moped around all day, saying how much she'd love to go to the dance. 
I'd go with anyone who would take me. I'd even go with the devil if he came, she said. Not an hour after she had uttered this dramatic statement, a fancy carriage approached the house, and out of it stepped a very dashing young man, who asked her to accompany him to the dance. She forgot all about the bold statement she made earlier, and quickly got ready. The girl couldn't wait to show the whole community what an impression she could make with her fancy new date, and was grinning at the thought of seeing the look on her ex's face when he saw her at the dance with this charming young stranger. Once she had gotten all togged up, they were off to the dance. That evening went off without a hitch. She danced for hours with her light-footed partner, and finally it was time for everyone to return home. She bid farewell to her partner and retired to her room, where a few moments later the whole house shook with the sound of thunder emanating from her bedroom. The family rushed in and found her dead, draped over her bed, with the devil's mark, a hoof, stamped on her forehead. There was a giant hole in the roof above her, and the stars twinkled in the night sky. The family then recalled her boldness before the dance, and presumed that the devil had indeed taken up her offer in exchange for her soul. Nova Scotia's capital city metro area has just as many ghost stories as its rural counterparts. Halifax is rich with legend, and there are many haunted buildings that line its streets. The Alexander Keith's Brewery has its former owner and namesake wandering its halls. The nearby old burying ground contains over 10,000 bodies, including that of Major General Robert Ross, who was shot in 1814 during an attack on Baltimore. He was shipped back to Halifax in a barrel of Jamaican rum and placed in a crypt. He's seen roaming the cemetery with his sword drawn, a startling figure in the midst of the headstones. Perhaps the most famous haunted building is the Five Fishermen Restaurant on Argyle Street. It used to be a mortuary and housed bodies from the Titanic in 1912 and the Halifax explosion in 1917. The explosion itself took place on the morning of December 6th of that year. It was wartime, and the harbour was filled with bustling people and rows of ships from all over the world. There was a narrow section of the harbour called, well, the Narrows, and that is where a fatal miscommunication happened. The French ship, Mont Blanc, collided with the Norwegian vessel, Emo, and a fire broke out on deck. The Mont Blanc sailors quickly abandoned ship, rowed to shore, and ran for the hills. Their boat just happened to be loaded to the brim with heavy explosives. 
Ablaze, the empty ship drifted toward the harbor front, and curious onlookers gathered close to watch the spectacle. At 9.04 a.m. she exploded, the blast killing everyone nearby and many others across town. The force of the blast wave shot out at 1,000 meters per second, or 3,600 kilometers per hour. It obliterated whole communities such as the nearby Micmac Nation, Richmond, and much of Africville. The whole province could feel the ripples of the blast, and it was noticed as far away as Prince Edward Island. Historian Helen Creighton, an author of Blue Nose Ghosts, whose stories you've heard in this episode, was living in Halifax at the time. She was lying in bed when she had a sudden urge to duck under the covers. She dove under the sheets and the blast rattled through her home, sprinkling her bed with shards of glass and sending part of the wall covered in nails down upon her pillow, where her head had been moments before. In total, the explosion and the fires that followed it claimed about 2,000 lives, injured around 9,000 more, and damaged or destroyed 12,000 buildings. It was the largest man-made explosion until the atomic bomb, and it remains the largest artificial accidental explosion in history. So many sudden deaths and such destruction will of course yield many ghosts. The most popular story, however, isn't actually a ghost itself. The Church of St. Paul's on Argyle Street has a window which is imprinted with the silhouette of a man's head. It's supposed to be the head of the young organist who is practicing at the time of the explosion. The blast wave ripped through the church with such force that it decapitated him and sent his head flying through the shattered window frame. The face is the echo of his presence there, and somehow it stays, no matter how many times the workers replace the glass. The name Peggy's Cove will undoubtedly be familiar to you. Its lighthouse stands atop rounded grey rocks that jut out into the sea, and it's one of the most photographed places in Canada. You yourself might pull out your phone to take a snapshot and notice there is someone standing off in the distance. There is a woman on the rocks by the ocean, the rocks that have warning signs to keep people away. Her blue dress dances in the breeze as she faces the horizon. There is something sad about her. You can't quite put your finger on it. She throws out her arms and makes a move to jump off the rocks into the raging waters, then vanishes. You call out, you gesture towards the spot where you had seen her, but no one else seems to have noticed. You run over as close as you can get to the ocean, but there is no trace of her. She's simply gone. 
you might think that you've just witnessed someone jump to their death, and in a way you have, although that death happened many years ago. There was a woman who had come to Canada from Europe, hoping to make a better life for herself. She had recently lost her two children at sea, and was feeling rather hopeless when she disembarked in Halifax. While she began her new life, she fell in love with a local man and they were married. They lived in the area you now know as Peggy's Cove. One day she was sitting on the rocks, gazing out across the water, dearly missing her children. Her husband saw her out there looking quite forlorn, so he figured he would go cheer her up. He was always a bit of a goofy fellow in a very charming way, and he never failed to make her smile. He hopped out onto the rocks in front of her, calling out silly things. He could see it was starting to work, so he mustered up all his goofiness and started to do a silly dance, hopping back and forth on the rocks. His wife began laughing and smiling, cheering him on. He became more confident, dancing on one leg, then spinning around. For all that he had in charm, he lacked in deftness, and his foot slipped as he spun, causing him to tumble down to the lower rocks. He landed on the back of his neck, and there was a loud crack, causing him to sharply inhale the water that swept over him, a breath that would prove to be his last. This was too much for the poor woman, who had witnessed the entire thing. After the funeral, she was seen exiting her home in an elegant blue dress, her only article of clothing that she held on to from her old life in Europe. She walked over in the direction of the rocks around Peggy's Cove where her husband had died, and she was never seen again alive. The lady in blue, as she is now known, is seen by people from all over the world who visit Peggy's Cove. The locals know all about her, and some have seen her themselves. Her presence, while sad, is a very grim reminder of the danger on those rocks. While there are warning signs up around the area cautioning people to stay far away from the water, every year several people ignore them and climb those darker, slipperier rocks, more likely to take a selfie than to do a silly dance. But every year poor souls are swept away by larger waves, or they tumble down off the rocks into the ocean, never to climb out. Given the large number of these deaths over the years, it's a wonder that the Lady in Blue is the only ghost people have seen wandering the rocks by the lighthouse. Our final story hits home for me. I spent many a summer and winter in a little town called Five Islands, and I would like to share a rather bloody story from there. Before I dive into that, however, there are some very important details to cover. First, I would like to acknowledge that these stories are not my own, nor are they collected by Discover the Past walking tours. The stories you heard today are from various websites and public forums, as well as the following books. Blue Nose Ghosts by Helen Creighton, originally published in 1957 by Best Book Manufacturers Incorporated. The copy I have is the 1994 version, published by Nimbus Publishing Limited. I picked it up at Russell Books in Victoria, and I'm sure there are copies in used bookstores all around the country, and on Amazon. Great Canadian Ghost Stories by Barbara Smith, published by Touchwood Editions in 2018, which you can also find on Amazon or through Chapters in Indigo. 
This is a new release, and I especially encourage you to search for it in local bookstores to support Barbara's work and learn more about each area of Canada. Ghost Stories of Nova Scotia by Vernon Oichel, published by McIntyre Purcell in 2017 and available online through Amazon, Chapters Indigo, and McIntyre Purcell's website. Ghost Stories of the Maritimes by Vernon Oichel, published by Lone Pine Publishing in 2001 and available online through Amazon and Chapters in Indigo. You should be able to find this podcast on discoverthepast.com under the podcast tab and on the home site of ghoststoriesofcanada.podbean.com That's ghoststoriesofcanada, all one word, dot podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N, dot com. We're also on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and soon-to-be Apple Podcasts. It would be incredibly kind and helpful of you to leave us a rating and review. The more reviews and the higher ratings we get, the more people we can reach with these stories. If you don't know what to say in the review, consider writing, Listening to this podcast is more fun than dancing with the devil, or something like that. The music for the podcast was written and recorded by yours truly. My name is Zach, and I am one of the guides for Discover the Past Ghostly Walks. Also, there are a few people to thank for this episode. Thank you both to Kate and to Linda for some of the books I used to research this episode. Our next episode will be released Monday, July 8th, and will feature Prince Edward Island. No, not stories about ghostly potatoes or Anne of Green Gables. Think more along the lines of a man being stabbed by a pitchfork in a graveyard in the middle of the night. If you're interested in learning more about what we do, head on over to discoverthepast.com. All throughout the summer, we run historical walking tours every day at 10.30 a.m. and 2 o'clock p.m. Everything from Emily Carr-centered tours to guided walks through Canada's oldest Chinatown. Our specialty tours, however, are in the evening. Every night of the week, we run our ghostly walks. We have eight different routes. A different route every night at 7.30 p.m., so a different one each night of the week, and then our classic route for every night of the week at 9.30 p.m. Our tours for all of these are 90 minutes long, and they each start at 812 Wharf Street outside the Visitor's Information Center. The only exception to this is our Chinatown History Walk, which starts at 1689 Government Street outside the Starbucks. We would certainly love to see you out on one of our tours. That's it for the announcements. Grab your clam hack and your blueberry scoop. We're off to Five Islands for our final story. The Bay of Fundy is known for having the highest tides in the world. While the average tides around the world are about one meter, the Bay of Fundy clocks in at about 13 meters, meaning that from some places on the shore, it will appear as if the entire ocean has disappeared. There is a small village on the north shore of the bay called Five Islands, which of course has five islands. Moose, Diamond, Long, Egg and pinnacle. With the ocean draining away at low water, a person can quite easily walk out to the islands, and there is even an annual run around one of them called Not Since Moses. However, it can be just as easy to get stuck out there, 
Walking to the islands at low tide does not often leave you enough time to have a look around and make it back to shore before the tides return and the ocean floor is covered. The tides out there are a serious business, too. Occasionally, a local will be out in the clam flats at low water, bent down low with his clam hack. The fog will have rolled in, obscuring any view of the shore. The clam digger won't realize that the tide has begun coming back in until it is too late. If the unfortunate soul is on a higher mound of the ocean floor, he will find himself to be on a very small and quickly shrinking island with no sense of where the shore is. When that happens, it's quite common for the poor fellow to never make it back to shore, and instead be found dead on the seabed the following day. The largest of the five islands, Moose Island, is the only island out of the five that's ever had a permanent resident, and he's been a little bit more permanent than you might think. On the island near the site of the old house is a rock which is imprinted with the face of a man. That man's name is John Ruff. In the 1800s, John Ruff and his family came over from Scotland and moved to Moose Island, where they cleared some trees and started a small farm. They would come to shore with their goods and provide the village with produce, wood, and charcoal. It was during their frequent trips to the village that the locals would realize something was wrong. John was a harsh, cruel fellow to deal with, and his wife and sons, during the rare occasions when they would be allowed to join him in coming ashore, would look ghastly. It was clear that some level of physical and emotional abuse was taking place at the Ruff's home. Little did John know that his family was made of stronger stuff than he gave them credit for. While he was out on the mainland, his wife and sons would gather around the kitchen table to discuss how they were to escape his control. It was decided that he had to be killed. At first, they thought to lure him up to the top of the island's cliff and push him off. However, if they tried it and failed, or if John survived the fall, they knew that would spell the end for themselves. Therefore, they first tried it with a sheep. The sheep fell from the top of the cliff and down onto the rocks below, but did not die from the blow. They would have to come up with another solution. Their creativity seemed to run out by this point, and they were getting desperate, so the son's consensus was simply to axe their dad while he slept. As luck would have it, the day after they came to this conclusion, they found John Ruff snoozing in the barn. They crept in, each holding an axe, and began swinging. The dull thuds echoed off the barn walls, and it wasn't long before the blood and the life drained from their father. What to do now, though? His absence from the town would surely be noticed. There had to be a cover-up, but they had already thought one out. They dragged his body to the woods and felled a tree onto him. Quickly, they washed off the axes and hopped into a boat, sailing for shore where they put on quite the show of concern for their poor father, who had succumbed to a terrific accident while cutting down a tree. The body was brought back to the mainland and buried in the cemetery, with no one being the wiser. That is, until a few years later, when the truth came out. The youngest son, who was unaware of the rest of the family's schemes, had also been sleeping in the barn behind some hay when his siblings committed the crime. 
He had awoken and watched in horror while the axes flew into his father's skull. He couldn't keep quiet about it and told the townsfolk the real story. Authorities were brought in from Truro. They dug up the body and discovered marks in and around the head that surely came from no tree. The story had been confirmed, and the family was arrested. The trial was a controversial one. No one had cared much for John Ruff anyway, and the family was acquitted. After that, life for them in Five Islands would not be the same, so they packed up and moved away. Nothing was heard of them again. Moose Island has remained uninhabited ever since, with the exception, of course, of old John Ruff's ghost. Visitors to the island have witnessed a man covered in blood wandering through the trees around the old home. Back on the mainland, visitors to the beach at night time have seen a single light that wanders the shores of Moose Island off in the distance. They know it's John Ruff. Five Islands is a lovely little village. If you're ever passing through, stop by Granny's restaurant for some fried clams, and perhaps take a wander down to the beach. If it's low water, you'll see just how easy it is to walk on over to Moose Island and explore. Perhaps you might even choose to do just that. Keep in mind, however, that the tides roll back in quickly, and if you can't make it back to shore, you'll be on Moose Island for a full twelve hours. So if you visit, just make sure you don't get stuck there overnight. Thank you.